Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance, the large collaborative research network at Keras Life Sciences. This research network is composed of many academic sites and healthcare systems, all interested in delivering the best care for patients and to collaborate on precision oncology research to improve the outcomes of all patients affected with cancer. Thank you for tuning into this podcast, uh, which is at the intersection of clinical medicine and precision oncology. And today's podcast is focusing on the involvement of advanced practice providers in oncology care in the era of precision medicine. Advanced practice providers usually are either physician assistants or nurse practitioners, but uh, they have become uh, uh, very involved. And I believe, uh, I mean, I, I don't think pharmacists usually are integrated under advanced practice providers, but they're certainly heavily involved in uh, in teaching and oncology care. But our focus on today's podcast is to better understand who are advanced practice providers and how they are involved in oncology care, in the teaching, in the education to optimize the care for patients. And to do that, I have invited Sarah Wyman and Katie Simon from Emory University and the Winship Cancer Institute, which is a member of the Precision Oncology Alliance, to join me and to tell us a lot about the advanced practice provider, what they do inside out, and to help us understand the opportunities to improve on how we involve advanced practice providers in all things oncology care to optimize the way we deliver care for patients. Now, before I air this episode, I want to make sure you subscribe to the show, rate the show, and write a brief review. I appreciate You can always send me your feedback to cnabhan at karisls.com. Without further ado, Sarah Wyman and Katie Simon from Emory University on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Sarah and Katie, welcome to the show, to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. We're going to start by a little bit of an introduction about you, what you do, where you work. And really, our goal is to explain to listeners the role of advanced practice providers in oncology care, especially in the era of precision oncology. And I'll say immediately that when I was seeing patients, I could have never done what I did without the help of my uh, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, pharmacists, and so on. It is just impossible, uh, especially in this era. So Sarah, we'll start with you a little bit about you. Sure. Um, so I'm Sarah Wyman. I co-lead with Katie the Malignant Hematology Services at Emory Main Campus. Um, we have a group of about 20 APPs that work on the leukemia, lymphoma, bone marrow transplant, uh, and myeloma services. Um, and I've been doing this for about six years, but um, been a provider for about 10 and previously did palm critical care. Excellent. Well, welcome. And Katie? Hi, I'm Katie Simon. I am Sarah's other half. Thank you so much for having us on today. We appreciate it. Um, I've been doing this for, gosh, going on six years. It was my first job out of PA school, and I've been here ever since. 
Excellent. So, so we want to try to simplify things to listeners because some of them, you know, may not really understand what that means and what you do and, and really how you interact with patients across the spectrum of oncology care. Sarah, when we talk about advanced practice providers, what, what, who, are, who are advanced practice providers? What type of training? What type of degrees? Tell us about that a little bit. Sure. Um, so advanced practice providers are a group and it includes nurse practitioners as well as physician's assistants. And I happen to be a nurse practitioner and Katie's a PA. Um, so how you get to the job is a, looks a little bit different for each of us. Um, I was a nurse first and then went back and got my master's degree um, that allowed me to be, and there's different tracks. So I'm an acute care nurse practitioner. And I think Healthcare in general is moving towards having acute care nurse practitioners in the hospital and family practitioners uh, in clinics. Um, so it's an additional two-year, two-plus-year degree on top of having a nursing BSN. And then I'll let Katie can kind of talk about the PA tract. And for nursing, like, do you have to have, do you have to be a nurse for a, a specific uh, minimum number of years before you can do nursing nurse practitioner school? You don't. It's not required. I think it is um, favored just to have that bedside experience because otherwise, in the difference in nursing and PA schools, um, you don't have that necessarily patient care aspect if you go straight from your nursing, your BSN to your NP. You can do it, but I think um, most people prefer you to have some nursing background. Katie, how about physician assistants? Yeah, the timeline is pretty similar. My PA school was somewhere along the lines of 29 months, um, and I think it's pretty common for all PA school applicants that you have to have a set amount of hours in order to be considered as an applicant to apply to PA school. So, for example, I worked in an infectious disease clinic as a phlebotomist uh, for two and a half years. A lot of people worked as EMTs or scribes, um, things like that, to get that bedside experience before you go into school because the training is so much shorter than than your standard medical school. And then. In physician assistant school, do you have to also specialize? So, I mean, you know, Sarah did the acute care and then now, I mean, or do you have, do you could do general? Uh, that's a great question. There are some PA schools that have a focus. Um, for example, Emory's focus is on primary care. But with that said, the degree is just all encompassing. So when you're a PA, you can practice anywhere. So then how did you end up doing oncology, Katie? What got you from when you finished PA school to get into oncology? I did a rotation with the current group that I'm in um, as one of my electives. I really enjoyed the hematology oncology didactic session in PA school. So I chose it as one of my electives um, and they suck me in and I haven't been able to leave. I love it. <laughs> you, you fell in love with the patients and with the providers. Sarah, how about you? You were in pulmonary critical care and then you moved to oncology? Yeah, I um, I loved pulmonary critical care. It was, I mean, I had a passion for it. And I ended up in oncology sort of by happenstance. I had a baby and we, um, in critical care, we were working seven on seven off and rotating shifts and going to three different hospitals. And I needed something that was just a little bit, I think more stable in terms of schedule. And I applied for a job with the bone marrow transplant unit and, um, I ended up getting it. And honestly, the transition from critical care to what we do now has been a perfect one because I still get it. The patients are sick you get to take care of the patients that need you. Um, and there's not, there's a lot of variety. 
um, mm-hmm. just like in critical care. So it was a really good transition for me. So let's talk about your involvement in the patient journey, and then we'll transition from that to uh, what precision oncology means and how you are involved in that. So Katie, I'll start with you. Like, you know, take me through how are you involved in patient care and uh, how is the team, the composition of the team that is involved in patient care? So Sarah and I both, we work on the inpatient service. Um, So most of our patients are kind of in the acute phase of their illness and our team and how we practice is we manage really the day-to-day ins and outs of every medication, procedure, lab, imaging um, that the patient gets or receives. Uh, We do a lot of the day-to-day management and then the attending kind of helps mold the big picture. I think one of my favorite parts though of it is we really have the time to go in and sit with the patient. We're there with them for 12 hours a day, usually three days in a row to get to know them, their family, their loved ones, um, and see them throughout the course of the days that they're there. And then when the patient is about to be discharged, uh, is there somebody else that takes over on the other side, on the outpatient side? There's a version of us on the outpatient side that we only work inpatient and they only work outpatient. So we work really hard to do really diligent discharge planning. And we have wonderful uh, discharge coordinators that help us with that to help make the transition from inpatient to the outpatient team successful and safe for the patient. So, Sarah, I want to go back before. I mean, it seems like, you know, uh, you're very heavily involved in the day-to-day acute management of the inpatients. But you both have got a different, like you were a nurse first, and then you went back to get your advanced degree, and Katie did the PA school. But are there any differences in your responsibilities at all? Is it completely interchangeable? Yes, it is. Um, There's no differences in how we practice or what we're able to do. And is that by design or like, you know, I'm... uh, trying to wrap my head around this help me understand so basically despite the different degrees there's no difference in the scope of work that you would do correct okay so as part of your role in the inpatient uh, setting sarah how much of education do you have to give patients and families like how, how involved are you in the educational component these are patients and families who are diagnosed with a severe illness and they have a life-threatening condition. There's a lot of teaching and education involved. Is that you, the fellows, the pharmacist, the attending? How tell me tell me a little about that. Sure. It's truly a multidisciplinary um, approach to teaching. I think we all take a portion of it. And as Katie mentioned, we being there 12 hours a day ha- are fortunate to have time to, you know, a lot of times to sit with the patients and the families and a lot of times they'll hear something once and it that might not all sink in because they're, you know, based on what's going on. And so we have a chance to go back in and reiterate education on certain things, or maybe there's another family member that needs to hear sort of the plan of care and what's going on and information about the, the diagnosis if they're newly diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And do you get involved a lot in the uh, diagnostic testing that, you know, um, you know, the type of diagnostic test, uh, a PET, a bone marrow, a, a CT scan, uh, molecular sequencing? I mean, you deal a lot with, obviously, malignant hematology, and, and God knows you cannot treat leukemia right now without having a lot of access to a lot of information on the molecular level. How much of that uh, are you involved in the teaching aspect of it? 
we, the um, advanced practice providers do almost all of the procedures um, on the floor. So the bone marrow biopsies and send the, actually send the specimens to the path and the heme labs. So I would say we do a good portion of it. I mean, we, a lot of times are, are the ones ordering the CT imaging scans and the PET scans. Um, again, with oversight, a lot of times from the attending physician saying, making sure that we have everything that we need, but it's mostly up to the APP in terms of the implementation and procedures. Including the, like you get to decide, for example, the molecular testing of patients that are undergoing the test. Do you make that determination as well, Sarah? We have standards, like set standards for newly diagnosed patients that are coming in that we check for everybody. And then usually we do um, touch base with the physicians and say, hey, is there anything specific that you want us to send? Okay. So, Katie, to, to do that, uh, I envision that there should be some form of a, uh, resources for you, uh, uh, teaching, seminars, conferences, because things are evolving constantly. So what do you do uh, to keep up with what's happening in the world of oncology? Because um, I presume it's going to be more than just hearing what the doctor says, because half of what we say sometimes is wrong. I'm kidding, not half. <laughs> Not half, not half, not half. But no, I mean, in all seriousness, like what, what what do you do to keep up with what's happening outside? Yeah. You know, I think that was a real challenge for us when Sarah and I um, stepped into this leadership position was that there was no real resources and is why we feel so passionate about HPP integration into this field is um, making sure that APPs have those resources available to them, um, whether it be a chalk talk from the attending, encouraging our team members to take time off to go to a conference, uh, get involved in research, uh, make connections that way, and really utilizing kind of everything from different places. Because you're right, it changes every day, um, and there's a lot of information to keep up with. Are there conferences specific, uh, uh, Katie, to the uh, to the APPs annual or semi-annual that you go to, or do you usually go to the ASCO, ASH, the ones that... Uh, usually more attended by by physicians? It's kind of a mix. Um, we have opportunities to attend all of them. Sarah and I are actually going to JADPRO in October later this month, which is focused specifically at the APP level for oncology. There's also uh, state-specific conferences and organizations that you can be a part of, um, like GAPA, which is the Georgia Association of Physician Assistants. Um, and we have CME money that we can direct at that, so we have that available to us. And Sarah, I mean, I recall back in my day, I mean, there, there's an ONS, there's an Oncology Nursing Society. I remember actually I lectured a couple of the, the meetings. Is, is, I mean, do you still be involved in this on the nursing level or do you, do you feel it's not big enough in scope to match your expertise? No, I mean, I have attended some of the ONS um, conferences through Emory. Um, I was not an oncology nurse. I was a critical care nurse. So I had none of that oncology background. But a lot of our physicians that we work with and colleagues and consultants actually do present at the ONS conferences. So I think some of it um, is very pertinent and applicable, whereas other of it's probably more generalized to nursing. I mean, I feel the educational component of things is so important because you deal with patients every single day and things are evolving very fast and you're spending all of this time. Like, wh wh where are the gaps that you feel 
are there that that needs to be filled, whether it is by the physicians, hospitals, or even by, you know, companies like Keras, where we really would like to be on the educational forefront? Yeah, I think having access to, you know, I think we can, our day-to-day is very busy. Um, Yes, we're there for 12 hours, but it's very easy to spend that 12 hours in doing direct patient care, you know, education with families and making sure everything's going smoothly. Um, But taking a step back and having time during that time, or even on our off days to um, have education and whether that be a quick Zoom session versus, you know, a chalk talk like Katie mentioned is invaluable. Katie, is there an actual, are there platforms that that based on your schedules as APPs and what you do that are best? I mean, are you more in favor of in-person meetings, Zoom meetings? Like what's what's the what's the what's the going trends nowadays? I am in favor of whatever we can get people to show up to. Um, I think there's a certain lack of a personal feeling to a Zoom. Um, but if if that's what I could get someone to show up to on their off day, you know, I think it works great. Um, we've also been working to, there's a lot of educational material for the fellows and the residents um, and to get those resources opened up to the APPs, you know, whether it's the M&M lectures, the fellowship lectures. Um, so you, get, you get to attend, you, you get a chance to attend all of those. We're working on it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then, then how are you? I mean, you. I presume you also, and I don't know. Do you participate in teaching others? Um, I mean, you you're both co-leaders. So, I, are there teaching responsibilities upon you for new PAs and new NPs, or even um, you know students and and whatever it is? Maybe you both can answer this separately. Katie, do you are you involved in the teaching component aspect? Yeah. Our service is actually entirely APP run. Um, We have fellows that come through a couple of months throughout the year, and occasionally we have residents. And I think that's one of the unique things about being in such a specialized service is that when they come to us, the dynamics are kind of swapped in that we're the experts on the specifics of BMT, which, and they have a lot to offer for the medicine component and big picture type things. But so we kind of teach each other. And then we also learned through trial and error um, that there's a specific person who is successful on one of our teams and finding that person and having a successful candidate and organizing a successful orientation so that people are able to practice at the top of their license on our service has been something we've really worked through over the last three years. Mm -hmm. Mm Sarah? Sarah? Yeah, as Katie said, you know, we've got residence fellows that come through. And then we also have a lot of um, PA and P students that we um, rotate through the services that we all kind of take turns teaching on top of uh, new grads. I mean, I think Katie and I, over the last, I want to say two years, have hired maybe eight new people to the team, um, with a large portion being new graduates and sort of, you know, all the education that comes along with it. So you're learning how to be a provider not only being a provider, but also learning a, a specialty field. Yeah. So, Katie, how much how much autonomy do APPs have in, in decision making? I mean, I obviously realize that, you know, the patient comes in, kind of treatment plan is already outlined, right? Somebody coming in for a particular therapy or a particular thing that are ongoing 
And a lot of the plan may have been discussed in the outpatient setting before they come to you. But during that inpatient stay, and maybe you can extrapolate from your colleagues that you know on the outpatient setting because you interact with them all the time, how much autonomy do you and they have in some of the decision-making pertaining to patient care? You know, I think the difference between the outpatient and the inpatient is the outpatient providers are really focusing on malignancy and the inpatient providers, we focus really on the entire patient. We function as a primary service. So in the day-to-day, we have, I would say, really full autonomy over managing hypertension, diabetes, uh, sepsis, everything like that, in addition to the, you know, the logistics of their leukemia induction or their transplant process. Um, again, we round as a multidisciplinary team and there's oversight from the physician, but as far as the day-to-day and in-the-minute decisions go, we're really the ones that are on the floor, you know, boots on the ground making those decisions. And your colleagues on the outpatient setting, do you feel they have um, similar autonomy? They have similar autonomy as well, and I probably make a little bit more decision-making within the treatment plan itself. You know, myeloma is progressing. We're going to change to DARA. Right. And, and Sarah, so for example, you make the decision if you need to order a CAT scan, you need to order, uh, you don't need to really pick up the phone every single order you need to make, right? Correct. Yeah, no, we, um, and I think we are very lucky and I, you know, it's probably, group specific, but we are very, very fortunate. We have a great group of um, attendings that we work with and they're very collaborative and they trust us. Um, We've earned that trust over a period of time. And um, so we have the ability to, to make independent decisions like that. So, um, and obviously I know that your, your scope of work is a little bit different than others, but uh, at Emory, is that model uh, scalable to other disease groups? So there are, APPs in the thoracic group, APPs in the GU group, in the GI group, or is it just specific for the BMT and the heme malignancies? I think it varies um, across groups. I mean, there's AP, every group, as far as I know, has APPs. I can't think of one that doesn't, um, but how they function is different. For instance, the cardiology group has an APP that does all the consults, but staffs every single one with a physician. Um, so it's not, and I guess it's the difference of being a primary service maybe versus for a, a consulting service too. Yeah. Uh, so Katie, I mean, I don't know, um, it, it, what, where do you see the field going and how, where are the opportunities for better integration of APPs in oncology care? And I, you know, I realize maybe you have a unique setting, but I wanted to think broadly and, and you put on just the, you know, the pontification hat, if you were to want to do, have the APPs be integrated better and optimize that in oncology care, where are the opportunities in your views? I think there's really two big areas. I think research is one, you know, there's so much opportunity for advancement in the field. And I think that APPs could play a large part in that, in the research. And then I also think in policy, as far as medicine goes, APPs are relatively new. Um, and I think that with policy change, you know, at the state level or the national level, I think there's also room for changes in scope of practice and billing guidelines and things like that. I, I mean, how many APPs are there in, in the United States? Do we know? 
Oh, I can I can Google yeah. as we're thinking. <laughs> I I can Google as we're actually talking about this. Uh, uh, Sarah, what, where are I mean, what what can we do better to enhance the the involvement of APPs um, in oncology care in the patient journey? Sure, um, I think, and I think this has improved a lot just even over the last few years. But sort of um, giving not giving, but granting a seat at the table, if you will, um, to the APP and, and including them in, um, as Katie mentioned, sort of policy related decisions or um, in the in various committees that have to do with quality and leadership, uh, I think is a great place to, to start. Yeah, so it looks like, you know, there's a possibility you've got, uh, I can't really tell. So the there's about more than 36,000 new nurse practitioners completed their academic programs in 2019-2020. And, but 89%, according to Google, by the way, for listeners, uh, are apparently in the primary care setting. So that actually puts more pressure on, um, on the uh, field of, um, again, outside of uh, primary care. Um, so what else do you want listeners to know about APPs, oncology care, and in the era of precision medicine? And, and, and maybe you could comment here, Sarah, I mean, how you define precision medicine and precision oncology in your, sure. In your words? Sure. I think um, as research is ongoing, it's a very exciting field to be in at the moment, um, and identifying different ways to treat each individual patient and their disease, um, to me, is precision oncology care. Um, there's no one, one uh, necessarily treatment path that works for a whole group of, of patients. Katie, anything you want listeners to know that I may have forgotten to ask uh, that is really important to APP's involvement in cancer care and especially in precision oncology? I really just want to, you know, highlight the importance of ongoing education. I think we can't do it alone. No one can do it alone. And I think the resources to educate, you know, we're a, a big, able field and of people and educate and we'll only continue to get better. Well, I really appreciate you spending some time with me on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I think it's really important for listeners to understand that it takes a village no one really could do it alone. And I think involving advanced practice providers in all of the aspects of oncology care is so important because ultimately, and the ultimate stakeholder is the patient, right? Uh, so we want to really do the right thing for patients. And, and to do that, we need to make sure that everybody is, um, is involved. Well, Sarah Wyman and uh, Katie Simon, thank you so much for being on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate your support. I appreciate your tuning in. Please let me know what you think and send any suggestions, feedback, or ideas. I hope you learned a little bit more on who are advanced practice providers, how are they involved in oncology care, and what can we do to optimize their involvement further so that we can optimize the outcomes of patients with cancer. I appreciate that. Thank you very much for tuning in. And until next time, take care.